Gosford Park really came about because Robert Altman and Bob Balaban had this idea of using the sort of form of a, uh, an old whodunit to make a movie that kind of examined class and how those houses were run and how the upper classes in England lived at that time. And, of course, for that, they needed someone who, A, knew those people and knew how those houses worked. And that was my lucky break. And I had to think up various characters and stories uh, and submit them. Uh, and that is how it all began. It was a kind of opportunity to have a look at that world. And because of that, uh, the detail uh, was important. It was, it was felt right from the beginning that the film would only work if it was absolutely correct in all its details. Uh, and again, that's where I uh, was useful to them. I always rather like this car. Actually, the, my idea for the car with the open seat at the front came from um, one of my great aunts, a character called Lady Sydenham, who used to have a driver who wasn't allowed to use the soft top if she was in the back, so he actually had to drive in the rain. And that went on until the 1950s. She died, I think, in 52. And when her guests sometimes, when my parents or someone would be being taken back to the station after staying with her, she had a house called Lamberhurst Priory, they used to allow the chauffeur, who was called Church, to put the roof over his head, but never when my aunt was actually in the car. It seemed to me to be the most extraordinary expression of the two lives lived in close proximity. They are literally travelling in different conditions in the same vehicle. My aunt's maid was also never allowed to get into the car until she had, um, which of course inspires the whole business of Mary having to stand in the rain. I think what one was trying to show was not that one lot of people were horrible and other people were lovely or anything like that, which I keep reading about in various reviews, but simply that they were all together engaged in a sort of arrangement that they consciously or subconsciously accepted the rules of without really questioning them. And the fact that these people just automatically assumed their roles of submission or subservience or whatever. Um, and there was you know, measures of friendliness and so on between the classes. But very few people actually said, why are we doing this? Why, why are we allowing our lives to be made secondary to their lives or whatever? And, and the other side of that, of course, is that the upper classes as well were trapped within this kind of tremendous obligation to find enough money to live in a certain way. Um, one of the anomalies of the English class system being that the fortunes have been preserved through primogenitor which means that only the eldest son gets it. And so all the younger sons and the daughters have this imperative to live as they have been taught to live, but they are not given the income to do so. And so you get these things of marrying people they wouldn't perhaps otherwise have chosen or a certain desperation to acquire the income, which of course underlies a lot of the upstairs plots of this film. The point of the thermos, of course, is to show how even the most minimal effort is simply beyond some of them. I mean, I do, even now, know people. There's a wonderful story of Lord Derby, the old Lord Derby, who one day had to stay in a house party without his valet. And when he came down to breakfast, they asked him how he'd slept and everything, and he said, oh, very well. He said, but uh, my toothbrush didn't work. And they said, do you mean... He said, well, it didn't froth. We're all right, thank you. And it had never occurred to him that his valet had actually been putting tooth powder onto it. Yes, I'm William McCordle's cousin, Ivor. 
Ivan Avello was included in the film after the first draft um, by Bob. He wanted to use his music, which he felt was very underused and forgotten, really. Uh, and also, we both felt that to have one real-life character in the film sort of nailed it into the period. Um, <clears throat> it was very helpful to me because I already had Weissman uh, as a sort of alien. And, of course, his introduction was made much easier by the inclusion of Ivor. Weissman, actually, is based on a, a real-life character. Who, when I lived in um, Los Angeles at the beginning of the 80s, uh, I had a friend called Sam Schwartz, who'd come from Madison, Wisconsin, and now he's a huge agent for music. He's head of Gorfay and Schwartz out here. But um, then he was just starting out, and I, I took him to stay with my parents in Gloucestershire once. And it, it was so different a world for him, so entirely alien a planet, that he actually took his umbrella when he went to bed in case he needed to defend himself in the night. And what I felt was that we had to have one character who wasn't just out of it in the sense that Mabel is out of it or William, but was truly from another world. And so he could represent the audience who didn't know any of the rules. There could be someone up there who didn't know how, you know, breakfast was served or whatever. Uh, they could have a sort of friendly alien on the screen. Welcome back, it's a real period thing to have Sylvia riding in a scarf because, of course, now everyone always insists on hard hats. Why can't he make it out, for instance? I'm not the upstairs maid. He's still got that vile little dog, I see. Yes, the world we hate lasts forever. Do you have a horrid I remember hearing something say, someone say something rather similar about uh, a dog of their husbands. It made me laugh. The ones you hate last forever. Mary, because she's inexperienced, doesn't really know the rules, and that's why I made her very young and a beginner, so that she could legitimately find out the rules with us, so to speak. Uh, and also she represents all of us who, you know, when you arrive the first day at school and everyone seems to know where they're going except for you, it's that awful sense that everyone else has been given a rule book and you haven't. These are the guns. Where's the gun room? Down there on the right. I hope that the first surprise of the film is that you expect to go into the house with Lady Trentham and all the others. And in fact, of course, you come down into the engine room, so to speak, to see it all working, which is, uh, for me, the moment when we're telling them this is not going to be the same old country house mystery you've always seen when you spend your time in the library and the drawing room um, and you see all the complications of it. The point was that these houses were run very, very, you know, meticulously and automatically. That's the other thing. One of the hardest things for all the actors was to do their tasks as if they'd done them a hundred times before, that everyone knew all the rules except for Mary because she's a young girl. But these ones, you know, the ballot and um, the maids and all the rest of it, uh, they all know their stuff. When Barnes, the, when she says, um, you'll see the keeper there, he'll show you what to do. I know what to do, he says. Um, and that's what one wants, is this feeling that they'd all done it a million times before without questioning it. The first footmen were, uh, or actually the footmen, were quite often a certain maverick element in the house because they were usually young or youngish um, and often chosen for their looks and height, as a matter of fact. Tall footmen cost more to employ than short ones. Uh, and so they always had a reputation for being the sort of Lotharios 
of the household. And they would go on, you know, to be butlers or whatever, or leave service. A, a, lot of, a lot of all this, one has to remember, was a kind of finishing school for the working class that the maids particularly would come in. Most of the housemaids were young because they would come in and they would, you know, maybe 14 or 15, and they would be trained up in certain skills of either cookery or sewing or the care of the house in some way. And then most of them would go off and get married and that would be the end of it. I mean, it was there in a way training. Uh, so that was quite a different way of looking at it than now. In the, in the marriage of the Nesbits, um, I wanted to explore that thing of when you, you marry someone as a solution and in fact all they turn into is an even bigger problem. He's married Mabel for her money. The money's gone. It wasn't as much as he thought. Uh, and now he's just ashamed of her. But of course, during the film, we come to like Mabel more than quite a lot of them. The story between um, Nesbitt and Isabel uh, is an example of a decision that uh, Bob and I made very early on. Oh, I love this bit. And he says, don't worry, it's nobody. That's really the theme of the film. Um, but it's an illustration of uh, the idea we had that if we were going to have all these stories, we weren't going to be able to give the information more than once. This land, when he put the stock bridges in, that wasn't originally thought of. And he said, oh, she can say something coming downstairs. So I remembered a line from a house party when the man had complained about um, the guests. And she said, oh, it's a relief to me to sit next to someone who isn't deaf in one ear. Makes you sound so desperate. Well, I am fucking desperate. <laughs> there are three marriages of the three sisters, uh, Sylvia, Louisa and Lavinia, and they really illustrate the marriages of that class, um, the slightly unsuccessful ones, uh, that one has married money with a man she despises, one has married rank with a man who bores her, and one has married for love, but the man is a failure. And, of course, within the family, she is considered the one to be pitied, even though she is the only one who is happily married. Uh, an irony that is quite often seen in that world. I love the Magritte image of Henry Denton. The attics and the kitchens were built at Shepperton because they are the parts of these houses that have been altered most. Again, this curious sandwich of sort of bleak rooms on either side of this tremendous luxury. The story between William and Louisa um, is one of the many kind of suggested uh, themes in the film. Whether they are having an affair, would have had an affair, uh, it's never resolved. That's really for the viewer to decide. Uh, of course, what we do eventually learn is that he would rather have married her, but that's a different thing. Poor Weissman, who gives himself away by talking about the costs of the telephone. So who's the funny little American? Uh, Morris Weissman, he's a friend of either. Although none of them ever say that Weissman is Jewish, uh, of course they are all aware of it, and they give him a sort of off-the-shoulder, you know, cold treatment. They never include him. He's always slightly the odd one out. And uh, what I was hoping to show in that is that sort of not rabid anti-Semitism that pervaded the upper classes then, but a sort of unconscious anti-Semitism that did quite as much damage. 
It was because of their sort of mild but ubiquitous dislike of Jews that they refused to believe or accept what was really happening on the continent for so long. Uh, I think a good many of them, actually, uh, I would include my own father in that, were, were rather shocked after the war at what they had sort of, not allowed happen in that way, but what they hadn't really paid any attention to. Um, and his, uh, not he wasn't very anti-Semitic, but I think he felt badly about it. He always spoke after the war as if they had as a class been guilty in part in letting it happen. In a way, Elsie's attachment to the movies is part of the theme of the film that uh, popular entertainment at that time, the films, popular music and so on, were really the first time that entertainment had been devised and designed for the working classes. And the upper classes on the whole separated themselves from it. They, they rejected it. When it was the world of opera and the theatre, they had embraced it and patronised it. But they saw this uh, new form as having nothing to do with them. And, of course, that later was extended to television, you know, and you often hear people even now say, oh, we never watch television, we're far too busy. But, of course, what it was was a separation of their own class from the principal means of communication of their own time. I mean, it was ludicrous. And in a way, one comes to see the people who enjoy um, the songs of Ivan Novello or the films like Elsie as people who are connected to their own time and who have a future, whereas in the upper class's rejection of them is a sense that they're just looking forward to the past. In this scene, we, we see Lady Trentham really tell Ivan Novello how unimportant popular entertainment is, that she rejects the status that Mabel, of course, is giving him because he is a popular star. Um, and she makes no bones about the fact that his popularity means nothing to her. Sometimes Dorothy helps, but why Mrs Wilson makes the still remain do it? beats me. I think she only does it to annoy Mrs Crawford. Dorothy the still remain, they talk about, who runs through the film... Actually, the steel maid always had a, a, a rather invidious position in that she was the only servant who was under both the housekeeper and the cook. And, of course, we explore that. Yes, I did, actually. Now we see Lady Trentham irritated by Mabel's awe. Tell me, how much longer are you going to go on making films? Well, I suppose that rather depends on how much longer the public want to see me in them. Ivan Novello had just tried to revive his film career, which had gone rather into a slump, by remaking a silent hit called The Lodger. And it had come out in the summer of 32, and unlike the silent version, was a complete flop. It really told him that his film career was ended, and so uh, it, this was a period of reflection for him, which I think Jeremy expresses in his performance really marvellously. Actually, it was perfectly um, fortuitous, that, because... We'd already decided on November 32, and when I looked up all the stuff about Ivan Novello, uh, I discovered that it was just exactly at that moment that his career went into a sort of dip. Now, this scene is about the way uh, some servants adopt their own master's prejudices. Uh, and so when, you know, she says, what do you expect of a woman without her own maid? She is allowing herself to despise people without a, a maid, although, as Elsie says, I don't have a maid. I haven't given up. Uh, but they don't, you know, when she says, oh, that's different. Why is it different? Well, why is it different? Why did they accept these different values? She should call me McKeithen now I'm a lady's maid. That's what my mother says. But her ladyship can't pronounce it, so she calls me Mary. There were all these rules and gradations. Ladies' maids didn't wear aprons. They were called by their surname. All of it was as precise as anything that was happening upstairs. 
serious. There mustn't be any more nonsense. Again, there's a suggestion here. We lost a couple of scenes that made it slightly clearer that once um, Sylvia and Raymond had had an affair in the past, and he, of course, is very embarrassed by it. And she uses it, not because she's interested in him, she just uses it to tease him. But it's only, again, something you glimpse when you see the film two or three times. Meredith is in that horrible position of needing a favour from a member of his family, which, of course, as we all know, is one of the most ghastly spots any of us can be in. Yes? Ah, Mr Weissman, there you are. I'm dealing with this. What is it, Mr Weissman? Actually, although we later learn more about the relationship between the cook and the housekeeper, in fact, it was often an area of rivalry because their duties crossed in slightly uncomfortable ways. For instance, the housekeeper had the cupboard... Um, key for the supplies, which of course was often a source of irrita uh, irritation to the cook. Um, so in fact, uh, this rivalry did did occur many times. Although of course we later learn more about it in this case. I wanted Weissman to be a vegetarian because there is a curious thing among the English upper classes that the worst thing you can do is fuss about your food. Uh, in those days, the food wasn't particularly good. Well, it was all right in private houses. It wasn't very good in hotels or restaurants, as we know. But the great thing you must never do is fuss. You just eat what's on your plate. And that was really the premise of private education and nannies and governesses and heaven knows what for years and years and years. And so to be a vegetarian was sort of in itself socially suspect, really until pretty recently. I mean, there, there are still quite a lot of people who find it unacceptable. But... Um, it's just yet another way, area where the upper classes impose a kind of value judgment. And you have to be strong to resist it. Actually, my wife's a vegetarian. She has survived the ribbing. Williams is making a fuss. He has this ridiculous idea that Americans will sleep with guns under their pillows. They do, but they're more for each other than for killing birds. Remind me. In this Raymond, is really telling Ivor that he knows that although he is in the house party, he is not really a member of their world. It's almost an unconscious rejection. I mean, it's original for him that his mother was a teacher because, of course, no woman in Raymond's family ever did anything other than a bit of charity work in the village. And when he says, oh, that's marvellous, isn't it? What he means is, that isn't marvellous, really, is it? I'm breaking in a new maid. I'm simply worn out. This is a straight quote of one of my great aunts who always thought that when she was training servants, she was in some way doing serious social work. It was Well, I suppose she thought she was giving them a living or something, but it was rather marvellous that these girls were working their fingers to the bone. And dear Aunt Isie thought that she was the generous one. Money, again, underlays so many of these stories. Because there is a theory, you know, you often hear the English upper classes never talk about money. Well, maybe they do never talk about it, but they never think about anything else. Arthur, the second footman, is one of the romantics of the household. I find it a lot easier to clean them if you put the trees in first. I was just about to do that. Are these Mr Novella's shoes? Yes. Of course, the business of unrequited love or fan worship or something has always rather interested me, whether it is... It's explored more than in Arthur, really, with them Dorothy later. But whether, if you love someone who doesn't love you or even know about it in the case of a film star, uh, you are the lucky one in order to feel love, or whether it is an unlucky position. I don't know really what I think 
I think probably it's better. I think I agree with Dorothy. It's better to feel love than nothing. Again, here we see um, Louisa's maid despising Lady Trentham for not having enough money. Of course, she has far more money than Louisa's maid, but, Lu but Louisa's maid, Sarah, has allowed herself to adopt the prejudices of her mistress and to look down on aristocrats who have no money. Well, the other two sisters fell on their feet. Of course, it helps that they're both good-looking. Lady Sylvia's lovely. Do you think so? She might have done and a And we drop in these little possibilities of other plots, which, again, I think you enjoy more on the second viewing. Why was there a character so keen? The use of the rich and vulgar William McCaudle to fund the family, uh, of course, is a, a common theme in the survival of certain families, that they would marry uh, American heiresses or whatever. Well, they were rather an acceptable group, actually, but between 1880 and 1920, I think something like four or 150 American heiresses married into the British peerage, because it all had to be kept going. That They, they were nothing if they couldn't live in a certain way. The table setting was a source of some um, discussion. Some houses had far more utensils than that. Some, like Blenheim, had less, and the utensils were brought on between the courses all the time. So we settled, in fact, for um, the level of uh, certain houses. I think the Londoners had this amount, which basically took you up to the pudding and not beyond. The reason you ate fish with two forks or with one fork and a piece of bread was the other was that in the days when knives had steel blades, they left a taste on the fish. And of course, typically English, when they brought in stainless steel blades for the knives, which left no taste on the fish, they were declared middle class. And so the old practice of eating fish with two forks or with one fork and a piece of bread continued. Uh, and fish knives and forks became kind of synonymous with bourgeois in the famous poem that um, Nancy Mitford uh, included by Betjeman in her book, Noblesse Oblige. It starts, phone for the fish knives, Norman. Footmen were allotted uh, the duties of valeting visitors who didn't have a valet. Uh, it was, this was perfectly routine in all the houses then, just as the um, head housemaid and sometimes even an under one would be given the job of maiding anyone without um, their own maids. What's the matter with you? Nothing. Only I thought I'd be doing Mr. Novello, that's all. No, you won't get to see him in his underdrawers. Never mind. Better luck next time. Of course, this scene of Arthur being teased by George, of course, is all part of the sort of boarding school proximity of those houses. You were all jammed in together. Very odd. Apparently, he produces motion pictures, the Charlie Chan mysteries. Constance's contempt for show business is something I have really lived with all my life. I mean, even now, here, I'm in a thing and I've been nominated for an Oscar and all the rest of it. Uh, I still have various relations and things saying, Louisa tells me you've written a play. Because they can't really engage with that world or life at all. I, they, in some way it threatens them, although it's quite hard to understand quite why. This relationship between Mary and Constance um, is the, the one I chose to show that kind of, not pseudo-friendship, really sort of semi-friendship that did often exist between a master and valet or mistress and maid. Uh, it was an odd friendship because it could only be conducted 
on a sort of one-to-one basis. But nevertheless, in some cases, they did become quite attached. But of course, it was an artificial one, rather like a film star who says, oh, this is my driver, he's my best friend. And you think, yes, he's your best friend as long as he pursues the relationship on your terms. But nevertheless, I thought it was fun, instead of developing this relationship with Probert and William, or, you know, Sylvia and Lewis, uh, it was fun to develop Constance, who in a way is the least sympathetic character downstairs, into being quite sympathetic upstairs. I'll breakfast in bed and then get straight up into the twiggies. That was a, a common ploy. Married women were usually given the option of breakfast in bed and most of them took it. The advantage being that it got them out of a whole outfit because you couldn't breakfast in your walking tweeds that you would go out to a shooting lunch in. And if you stayed in bed for breakfast, you could just get up into the tweeds and miss one whole bother of dressing. But in a lot of houses, including one of my own aunts, Unmarried girls were never allowed trays, and that's I used in this. Raymond tells me she's been complaining that her allowance isn't big enough. Wouldn't mind stopping. Of course, William's position, which we explore really with Sylvia, he's he's married above himself, but he knows he's been married for his money, which gives him power, and so having achieved an aristocratic wife, he also resents her, uh, and feels irritated that he is made to feel lowly when he, after all, is footing all the bills. But that's a very common anxiety in these relationships. People in one way want to better themselves through their marriage and use their money to do so, but then, of course, become incredibly angry that they are always being put down when they're paying for everything. Mind you, I've seen that in America as well. Will there be anything else, sir? Yeah, just get, get me my fall down. Oh, where's he gone? The danger of servants in those days, or these, I suppose, uh, it's rather like journalists that when you talk to them long enough and you see them enough, you begin to sort of forget that they are actually eyes and ears. And my own stepmother was saying the other day how extraordinary it was the things that they would discuss in front of footmen at lunch or, you know, in front of a maid in the evening. Um, really, every servant in a great house was well-placed to make a career of blackmailing, I should think, but they didn't, of course, in those days. Upstairs, downstairs romances, or at least liaisons, were, of course, nothing new. At that time, they'd gone on as long as the whole situation had existed. This is part of the convention that we established very early on for the film, that basically there would always be a servant there, in this case, behind the door, um, or in the room. Uh, and when the servant leaves, the camera leaves, so that every argument anything like that, always has to break off all the time. We never, a lot of people don't notice, but we never see an upstairs character when there isn't a servant there. Whereas, of course, we often see the servants without upstairs people. I think Claudie Blakely playing Mabel is absolutely excellent. I thought she made the part so entirely her own. And when I first met her, she wasn't quite what I'd imagined physically Mabel was going to be. And after I'd watched her for about a week... I couldn't remember what I had imagined because she was so perfect. She completely became Mabel for me. Just gents. <laughs> oh, by the way, put the telephone call to California and I'd appreciate it. One of the um, points that these scenes in the drawing room and so on illustrate is that in these house parties, today actually just as much as then, uh, you're expected to be sort of autonomous. You just mill around, you do your own thing, you read books, you talk to the people you like. 
And I think it must be very bewildering to outsiders. They come in, everyone else seems to be very relaxed and just lounging about. There isn't any kind of organised or central conversation ever. It's just sort of people banging on with this and that. And in a way, they think it makes them very relaxed, like their nicknames when they're all called sort of Toffee or Spotty or Dodo. But actually, it's very alienating. Where'd you start? Oh, this is when... Um, Ivor plays, uh, you, you often read in, in um, some of the articles that Ivor plays songs that are later than November 1932. That's quite untrue. The only songs he sings are all from pre-November 1932. But occasionally we allow him a little melody line from later because my premise was that musicians like writers keep things in the bottom drawer that they use later. So we have Sylvia saying, what's this? I don't know it. And he says, oh, it's just something I've been fooling around with, and, and of course it was uh, later developed into a song, but he never sings anything that was not already published and recorded by November 1932. Of course, Jennings here is horrified by a servant who doesn't know the rules, but he cannot say anything, he can only express it in his face. The cook often ate uh, separately, in fact, usually, except in smaller households than this, uh, with her own staff, because the cook was always very jealous of the fact that the kitchen maids were her staff. They, did, they were not answerable to the housekeeper. And one of her privileges was to eat separately, although quite often um, in households, which Mary actually refers to, uh, they all went into the housekeeper's room for pudding. Uh, just the upper servants, the cook and the butler, valet and the lady's maid just to mark class difference. You see here, he is ticking off Lady Stockbridge's maid because she actually is lower than a countess's maid because the same ranks were observed below stairs as above. She is actually also lower than Lavinia's maid because an earl's daughter who has married a commoner, Commander Meredith, still ranks as an earl's daughter, whereas an earl's daughter who's married a baron like Louisa Stockbridge ranks as a baroness. And so she also is uh, senior to the wretched Louisa's maid, who now has to fumble her way into a chair halfway down the table. Start when you get it was all to illustrate that, that the, the leisure of upstairs was not extended downstairs. There is a kind of rhythmic difference, as you've noticed, that Bob brings out all the time a kind of laziness upstairs and everyone downstairs is always very energised. They did, although we later, as I've said before, they, we later discover why they hate each other. In fact, they did often dislike each other. The butler always or normally managed to keep out of it. He was the sort of head of everything. Um, and so in a way it was like a king with two prime ministers. Service was the greatest employer of women uh, in Britain and in many other countries until the First World War. Again, as I've said, it often, uh, often um, it was because they were sort of training or being finished before they left and got married. But nevertheless, for the working woman, um, the vast majority were in service. And of course, there were families of servants because the maid would retire and marry the butler and so on. Uh, the number of servants who could be married within a household varied, obviously, but it was, on the whole, 
unusual for the junior servants to be married. They would be younger and they would leave to marry or, you know, they would never marry. The point here of Mrs Croft refusing to catch Sylvia's eye is because quite often there's a complicated power structure. Although in theory servants were all employed and were supposed to be sort of subservient, it was very frequent. They were quite difficult and particularly the cook. If you had a good cook, uh, you didn't necessarily uh, control them. You had to put up with a lot of and that moment is to show that it was more complicated than just a mistress and employees. One of the um, false aspects of this life that's usually represented on film is that everyone upstairs is very rude to servants. Practically no one was rude to servants. In fact, it was one of the great insults that people could say about you as the kind of man who's rude to servants. But of course, in Sylvia's politeness here is an expression of her own rank. Uh, when she says, do sit down and finish your supper, it is a kind of queen visiting the bottom end of the village. Which one of you is Mr Weissman's valet? The fuss about the vegetarianism, again, is this thing that it is an extraordinary trouble. It is weird that Weissman should be a vegetarian. Thank you for your efficiency. Of course, we're off here with another plot. You're all set, then. Yes, George? Nothing, sir. When George says you're all set, then, um, and there's one other line later from um, Mrs Croft... Those are the only moments when you realise that this is a regular event, that Sylvia is uh, inclined to dally with visiting handsome servants. If you miss that line and you miss Mrs Crofts, you never realise that it's a, any more than a one-off. But, of course, to, to have a sexual relationship with someone outside your class, uh, or this theme that's been examined by many writers, was a way of having some physical fulfilment without disturbing things. No, I didn't know that. It's quite exciting. Um, what's happened? The whole business of the empire, which we talk of here, of course, the empire, uh, in a way, in the 30s, was under notice. I mean, within uh, a comparatively short time, accelerated, obviously, because of the war. It would start to dissolve, and between 1945 and 1965, uh, the whole thing really was released and, and freed, one of the quickest um, dissolutions of an empire in the history of the world, actually. But a lot of people, after the First War, just thought it was a, a nonsense, really, because they'd lost the kind of missionary zeal of their parents and grandparents. Aren't you cold? Better than that kitchen. Because the kitchens were absolutely boiling at that time. They had these sort of vents in the roof. Elsie, hello. Good evening, Your Lordship. We've got bags and guns. The, again, the sort of semi-intimacy, semi-friendship, but the assumption that Elsie would just sort everything out. Everything, everything could just be done. That was the thing. You didn't have to worry. Where are my cases? You know, now, when you travel, I remember one, my grandmother once saying, "Your generation will never know the pleasure of travel." And I said, "You're mad. We go all over the world, far more than you did." She said, "Oh, I didn't say you wouldn't know the pleasure of arriving. Only the pleasure of travel." And, of course, when, if you can imagine now, travelling when you never had to worry about your cases, everything unpacked, everything done, everything reserved, it was an absolute breeze compared to the 15-mile walk at Heathrow that we have to go through. William, uh, that's not true, is it? You think the Empire's finished? I beg about that. Well, the, the Empire's finished after the war. Well, because of the war. Of course, William here has been sort of semi-cornered into bailing out his luckless brother-in-law, but part of his resentment is to get out of it. 
and cause maximum difficulty. And she, Sylvia, teases William about his lack of courage and lack of commitment. She is irritated by him because he is so vulgar and so unaristocratic, but she's made this choice to marry a man who can support her way of life. Raymond, who I don't agree is an unsympathetic character, I think he's quite sympathetic, is an honourable man who lives by the rules and he just doesn't know anything else any other way. Um, he's not very intelligent, but he is decent, and uh, which I think Charles Dance does absolutely marvellously. Uh, of course, some of their scenes are missing because one whole plot was taken out. Very good. This is one of the many moments when I want the audience to know that the characters have got things wrong. Later, we hear um, Jeremy saying, oh, the mother likes you. But we've just seen that the mother doesn't particularly like Rupert. She doesn't mind him, but she doesn't particularly like him. Because what I um, like is when characters on the screen are not always right about everything. We, we seem to think that every time a screen character says something, if they are a sympathetic character as opposed to someone who is a liar, it will be true. Whereas, of course, in life, people often get the wrong impression. But you can't let that put you off. He's much more of an obstacle than you think. Then you must overcome that, mustn't you? Here we have this um, story, which is quite likely etched, but of the clever friend who has latched on to the stupid aristocratic one who can show him the kind of life shooting he enjoys. Here, the business of the women leaving the men to their port. Um, I wanted to put it as it really happens with all the men moving up and all that. In some houses, as we've done it here, a port glass was laid at every place because nobody knew where the men would be sitting when they were drinking it. These young girls are typical of um, the village, local village girls who would come into a household when they were very young and they would learn the various skills. And that was part of the cook's job, actually. It was to train them uh, to do, you know, cooking or whatever it was. The hall boys we see lifting the china here, they, that's the beginning of the footman at stroke butler career, or at a certain point they might go up the other ladder, which was to become a valet. Being a, foot, being a butler or a valet were both very respected and senior positions. This anxiety over money, which of course Freddie and um, Meredith, Anthony Meredith are living with. It, it is a pressure because you're all the time dressing and living like an aristocrat, affecting a certain ease. And there is this terrible terror of being poor that is eating at your stomach like a rat that it's all about to come crashing down. Many, many people, even today, um, live like that. I think you could probably name people in Los Angeles who have chosen to place themselves in a social group which they cannot really afford. And so all their energies go into concealing that. Little bits of plot leaking through here. Uh, again, this business of only giving the information once or twice. So it means that I think for a lot of people, when they see the film a second time, they see various stories that they didn't even notice. Pleasant evening, my lady. Really In this scene, I, um, I wanted to show is that, as far as Sylvia's concerned, she's the one who's absolutely worn out. She's been, you know, sitting next to boring old. Raymond and Freddie and so on. She's absolutely worn out. She doesn't notice that Lewis, who is twice her age, has been working all the time. She's working now, carrying trays, hanging clothes. 
She isn't the one who's worn out, Sylvia is. And of course Lewis accepts it. That's the other part of this relationship that is in a way bewildering, I think, to our generation. She never says, oh, you're being unreasonable or anything. I was looking for my maid. She's just going downstairs. Can I help? Here we go with another story. The phrase bored to sobs comes from a cousin of my father's. It always used to make me laugh. I'm bored to sobs with this. I couldn't see, my lady. Hop then and something to make it sweet. You have your hands in your pockets. Sylvia, of course, even when making a sexual invitation, never for a moment dissolves the difference of rank between them. You have your hands in your pockets. Um, she is completely aware of the fact that the class barrier will survive it, and that is her protection, which, as we see later in the story, uh, is why she is so angry that that protection is taken away from her. She can only control the relationship if it is with someone of a completely different rank, and it's not going to get in the way and spoil anything. The point of Barnes is that we see that often the upper classes imagined that their servants were happy or indeed affectionate, when of course they didn't really know at all. Barnes can't stand Anthony Meredith, he despises him, but we never see that. Or at least Anthony never sees it, we see it. I think you should come with me tomorrow. I'll just say I need you. The challenge of writing this story was to keep it ambivalent all the way through this bit. We never, or I hope, we never give away too much uh, information. We suggest, of course, in this scene, that Henry Denton is, uh, for me, an opportunist rather than bisexual or any of those other emotive words. He is simply uh, an opportunist, an adventurer, who is prepared to use anything, anyone, in order to get what he wants. I think I should risk it to you. Clearly his duties to Weissman are distasteful to him in that department, and he thinks he can get away with not fulfilling them in this particular household. And I think we're none of us in any doubt that the minute his career gets a move on, then Weissman can whistle for it. But of course it is controlling. Here Weissman is showing that Denton had better remember that at the moment he has the power so he deliberately gives him that little bit of humiliation to remind him. This was an absolute rule that the men's and uh, corridors and the women's corridors upstairs were uh, very clearly divided. Um, usually one, a different staircase led to them and there was no um, interconnecting door. Quite often, uh, the, the difference between the two areas went on down right through the house. So unless you'd started up the right staircase at the bottom, so to speak, you couldn't get to that bit of the house. Uh, any mixture was absolutely frowned on. And indeed, if Mary, I mean, where uh, Henry is believable to her is if Mary was discovered in the male corridor, um, she would risk dismissal unless her explanation was accepted. Probably it would be, of course, by Constance, who wouldn't want to pay any more for a new maid. But I mean, in a normal house, that this was the ultimate crime, was to be found among the other uh, sex servants. Another little clue there. Of course, these young girls, I mean, the housekeepers and cooks and things that, you know, for the most part attempted to protect them, but they were away from their families. They were in quite vulnerable positions and some of them did get into trouble and 
and get dismissed. I think Clive Owen's performance is marvellous because he is constantly interesting and yet constantly mysterious. You never really know what's going on inside his head and yet you suspect something is really the kind of ideal film acting. Do you want a drink? Sure. So what do you make of the place? Is this a well-ruined house, would you say? Do you think Sir William would be good to work? Again, we see Henry seeking information about everything in his sort of research, with Parks reluctant to give it. I think that business of when you live in a, um, a group, if you're in a university or a school or even a large family, I'm always quite interested by people who learn to keep their own secrets. Keeping our own secrets is not this generation's strong suit. Uh, and yet it is essential if you're going to have any kind of privacy when you don't have physical privacy. And that we see with Parks is that information is given reluctantly because he, he simply doesn't want to you know, open his heart. We later, of course, learn why, but I think it's a general truth that anyway. What do you mean? I mean, why did she die? Was she young? Was it in childbirth? You're not very curious, are you? You're not very curious, are you? I rather like that. She worked in a factory. She had me a little while The whole business of sharing bedrooms and things with strangers, which again is something for most of us is over after our childhood, is a kind of semi-invasion. And you have to build up resistance to kind of keep a sense of yourself. Didn't mean to offend you. I'm not offended. And don't call me mate. Well, I'll see you later. Poor old Denton's attempt at, at um, matey talk just gets nowhere with parts. Here we have more of... Um, so Elsie, I feel, all the way through this is, uh, is the kind of representative of the real world, the coming world. She hasn't yet left service, but we do know that when she does, she's sort of equipped for modern times in a way that most of those upstairs are not. She's clued in. But we also see in this scene the sense that uh, a servant was expected really to be working all day. They had their couple of hours off in the afternoon when they had a bath and all the rest of it, which we see, but um, there was no moment really when their duties were done. So Mary sees the shirt that she has to wash and so on. Um, it's quite interesting, when we were making the film, we had um, Arthur Inch, who'd been a footman for the um, Marlboroughs, I think, and, and the Londoners and someone else before the war. And he said that when he was called up for the war, one of the things he couldn't get over was having the evening to himself. They were at training and they would finish at about six or whatever. And he'd have all these hours when all he had to consult was his own likes and dislikes, how he wanted to have his supper or whatever. He'd never known that from when he was about 13, he'd started out as a hall boy, that there was literally never a point when your work was done. And of course, a lady's maid who, or a valet who had to stay up to undress their master and mistress after a ball. I mean, they might still be working at three or four in the morning. Do it now. Do you want me to go with of course, Mary longs for Elsie to come with her, but she doesn't feel she can ask it. We've all been in that situation. 
the point of the film really is all these different disparate people all these different strands of lives going on and because of the proximity in the house they constantly cross and recross in corridors and on the stairs and yet hopefully the audience gradually disentangles all their different agenda and what they're after and so we are seeing sort of completed lives just coming into conjunction Mrs. Croft is, I think, wonderfully played by Eileen Atkins, another creature of semi-mystery in that, um, again, it's answered. We finally find out what her secret is, but it's that business of keeping her own secrets that marks her apart from our generation. In some houses, there was a visitor's ironing room and a house ironing room, uh, which we didn't do here uh, because we just felt that one ironing room was enough. Uh, they certainly did exist, as indeed did this kind of, as we've said, upstairs-downstairs convenient relationship. I was slightly worried in this scene by the, the um, washboard that Mary has. not quite sure what the damage would be if she started trying to rub the shirt against it. Presumably it would be shredded. Here is the second of... Bob's kind of amuse girl about uh, the poison theme, which of course is his sort of joke, really saying this is this is a film that is pretending to be a murder who done it, but isn't really. Bertha the kitchen maid um, represents the servants who never went upstairs. The 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 laundry was one group. Uh, the hall boys, uh, if they if they were upstairs at all, it was only simply to put logs or coal or something uh, before anyone was up. They never had any contact with the family, and they might glimpse them. But of course, we you know we see later that the death doesn't really affect any of them because they didn't know them, uh, and so it gave them a certain independence of spirit because they never had to put on little white caps and be deferential and curtsy and on any of that stuff. They were just free, free women, really, beneath their own um, controller. Have to have marmalade. I mean, Dorothy made too little of it last year. The marmalade the joke is really one of mine because one of my aunts always used to fuss about whether jams and marmalades were made properly, as she used to call properly, and not bought. She thought the worst sign of, of um, bad housekeeping was when uh, jams and marmalades were bought, and I've just given that prejudice. To Constance. And, and tell Mrs. Croft that, uh, sure it's hot. The soup is always served uh, on a sh on a shoot, uh, really in the middle of the morning, usually after the third or fourth drive. And as we see there, William is changing it. The scene is slightly stolen from suspicion, with uh, Cary Grant and Joan Fontaine, the the glass of milk. What are you expecting, someone else? Of course, the upper classes um, then always, and even now pretty often, uh, the husband and wife didn't share a bedroom unless they actually wanted to make love or be cosy or something. They would both have bedroom apartments that were separate. It's always a great thing with them 
beaters, not to offer advice to shots, because people get extremely angry on a shoot if the beater tells them why they miss. Uh, the irony of this being that, of course, in most cases, the loaders or the beaters are far better shots than the guns. But um, if you want advice, you must ask for it. I'm, I'm starving. Now, this is a key moment about the shirt. Here. I'll say that for Sylvia. She's not at all mean in that way. Not at all mean in that way. Bought marmalade. Tell me, I call that very feeble. Well, I suppose one can't have it. Of course, again, would Constance ever make any marmalade? The other one's warmer, and that's all I care about. What she doesn't care about is the fact that Mary has been up all night washing the shirt, drying it, ironing it, because all of that is. It's not, it's not um, heartlessness, it's thoughtlessness. There was so often no examination as to what their requests and orders had really involved or led to. This, of course, is extraordinary. No one ever would take their valet out shooting unless they were going as a loader. And, of course, um, Weissman isn't going to shoot. So, there's absolutely, so this is another clue as to the fact that something very odd is going on. We all have something to hide. Mr. We all have something to hide. Another poison one. The loaders carry the guns. Actually, in the 30s, they probably wouldn't have carried them broken, but they did sometimes break them, and it is a tremendous safety thing now. Uh, what they would do is carry them naked, as they are in this shot, uh, because gun slips didn't come in until much later. Would you like to get changed now, miss? This, of course, is um, a scene uh, showing that Isabel, the daughter of the house, knows what's going on far more than people suspect. She's dressed because she's been to breakfast. Unlike the married women, she's not allowed to have breakfast in bed. So she's got up into one outfit to have breakfast and now she's changing into her tweeds to go out for the shooting lunch. And, of course, we learn that Freddie is in some way able to blackmail. Well, we already know that. He says he's going to tell him. At this point, you realise that Freddie knows some secret about Isabel, although it isn't quite made clear what until later in the film. But this is the moment when we discover that Isabel knows Elsie's secret. To Daddy. Will you say something to Daddy? Really, miss, why do you think I can make a difference? Will you? Of course, Isabel knows everything. I was very keen, and in fact, help the guy blowing the horn there is a chap called Ron Puttock, who is um, actually a gamekeeper at a house called Luton Hoo, not very far from London, where the Queen spent her honeymoon. But I was very keen to get the guns a proper distance apart, as you see there, because normally in films, they're all standing together like some sort of firing squad from a banana republic. In fact, they are quite spaced out because, you know, you're supposed to shoot at your birds. In other words, not the ones uh, that really belong to your neighbour. They did their best, the actors with the guns. You, you can see they can't really swing properly, but um, they were doing their best. The strangeness of shooting, uh, of course, is illustrated by Weissman and Novello's reaction to it. But it is the core of aristocratic life, not just shooting, but hunting or fishing, um, the country sports are really what this life is based around, much more than any form of work. And so it seemed mad not to have 
a sporting central part of the party. Poor William, of course, is a rotten shot uh, because he's taken it up very late in life, which is uh, usually the problem of the parvenu taking up these sports that the upper classes would have been pursuing from boyhood. His loaders would know how bad he was, but they say nothing. The worst thing that can happen is for anyone to shoot low and then, you know, clip either a fellow Garners here or a beater. If anyone knows who's done it, then you are sent straight back to the house, as he says. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't be invited again, but of course they don't find out who it is. Now there is Lavinia, you see, wailing about money. And of course the others don't really care because to them her crime has been to marry a failure with no money. Uh, they never think it matters very much that she loves him. This is exploring that curious phenomenon of when children are a disappointment to their parents. Um, here Isabel is a source of disappointment to Sylvia. How could she have such a plain and badly dressed daughter? Because she is such a miracle of elegance, of course. But there is a terrible pressure. Uh, Maggie's line about her being in black velvet, the feather in her hair, was actually said about a relation uh, of mine's wife. He'd married this rather odd woman. And one of my aunts said, do check her. She's probably in black velvet with a feather in her hair. Because, of course, there's always this assumption that an outsider coming in will not learn the rules and will never be able to dress right or play the game, which, of course, lots of them can do within minutes. Part of this is that we see that the, some of the social codes of upstairs are not accepted. He doesn't stand up. Uh, any upper-class man would stand up the minute a woman walked into the room, but he doesn't feel that obligation to do it. He's quite content. So also, we now have a little bit more of the plot. Helen, I think, is absolutely marvellous as Mrs Wilson. All of these actors had to make performances. I mean, they're all leading players. They're all playing quite small parts. They had to make performances out of just very few scenes and quite often very few lines within those scenes. Um, but their tremendous talent as actors makes their story quite clear. They make their points uh, so that you have no difficulty really following them through the maze. I hope we haven't forgotten anything. I can't believe you forget much, Mrs Wilson. It was the job of the housekeeper uh, and the butler to make sure that any visiting servants had everything they wanted. The comfort of the guests was their responsibility, and part of that was making sure the visiting servants had anything they might need. The shooting lunch is a great phenomenon of, of these days. Uh, the women often join you for lunch and then usually uh, come out perhaps for a drive or two after lunch. On some shoots, they're, they're not welcome except at the lunch. But usually they are for a couple of drives afterwards. Women who are there all day is a, is a little bit more of a modern phenomenon. Often it's in a, a more enclosed place than this, a temple or a barn or something or other. Sometimes you go back to the house actually for the lunch. But on a nice day in um, November, you know, it still can be quite summery. And the great thing is that it's all supposed to be a sort of picnic. It's supposed to be very natural, whereas of course it's about as natural as Versailles really. Um, I've heard it said that Bloody Marys weren't drunk at this time, but they were. Most of the cocktails were started in the 20s. Uh, and funnily enough, it was one new invention that the English 
Upper classes took to like Billio. Drinking um, before, you know, cocktails sort of uh, before dinner or anything else is a post-World War uh, One phenomenon. Before then, you drank nothing. You just assembled in the drawing room and then went into dinner and drank wine. But uh, they liked the American idea of having a drink before and gradually the concept of the cocktail party took on in the 20s. And by this period, 32, was quite ordinary. Here, of course, you have Meredith's resentment of the fact that he is forced to live among the rich, which is, I think, quite a common phenomenon of those who choose that world. The maids had to take their baths in their couple of hours off in the afternoon because really it was the only time they had. I always enjoy the design detail of Stephen Altman's of putting the electric fire just above the bath in this. It makes me laugh. Is that Presbyterian modesty? There would be one bathroom for the maids and one for the footman. Certainly no more than that. Oh, won't be till the guns get back. And the heating of the water, of course, which was managed by the baller men and everything. We, we don't really get into the outside staff in this film at all. There were, uh, of course, grooms and electricians and everything. Now, the point of this is, again, um, what I was saying is that I like, I like the audience to see that good, sympathetic characters on the screen can be mistaken about things. Here, Mary's account of what she thinks she's seen uh, is in fact incorrect, as we later learned. She has put two and two together and made five. Uh, because I feel that that's what people do do in life. I don't think just because you're a sympathetic person, it means that you always get the correct impression. The powerlessness of the, the poor aristocrat is really reaches a peak in this, that Meredith can't understand how William is ruining him when it would mean nothing to him to save him. But, of course, William doesn't give a toss. And, of course, he's made a scene, you see. That's the great thing that the aristocracy find hard to forgive. It's rather like with their sex lives. Uh, you know, as Mrs Patrick Campbell says, you didn't really care what people did as long as they didn't do it in the street and frighten the horses. And they similarly... Uh, anyone who makes a scene, anyone who gets drunk, anyone who picks a fight... Anyone who argues too loudly over something that they disagree with is breaking the rules, is somehow showing that they're ill-bred. Uh, it is possible to conduct affairs or arguments or anything else, or indeed ruin, in a well-bred manner. Nothing should be played or talked of as if it is tremendously important. Between Lady Sylvia and Lady Stockbridge? Uh, well, I asked her ladyship about it. Now, this card plot is just another kind of... Uh, game that we I can't that do we think Constance was joking like Mary does in the end of course we're told that she wasn't joking and they did indeed do it and pick cards for William I mean look at poor old Lewis if her own mother had a heart attack she'd think it was less they cut a line at the end of this which I was rather miss when Elsie says all I want to be is at the centre of my own life. Of course, if you say that in this house, Mr Jennings thinks you're planning to blow up the Romanovs. Because I feel that that is what the servant revolution was about, really. It was about their regaining the centre of their own lives instead of placing their employers at the centre of it, which, of course, is an essentially unhealthy position. Now, in this scene, um, we explore the business of the friendship between the mistress and the maid, and one of the basic rules was that it could only be conducted if they were alone together. So you see that as soon as the door opens and Sylvia comes in... 
Then the maid is immediately a non-person. From then on, the conversation is only conducted between Sylvia and her aunt. And Mary says nothing, and Constance says nothing to her. And as soon as Sylvia goes, of course, then they will resume a conversation. And that was just an unspoken rule they all accepted. Because again, here, Constance is threatened with the spectre of poverty. The one time we see real emotion is the thought of losing her income. Now that you can be discreet about. In contrast to the earlier dinner, of course, the scene at the shoot has poisoned the atmosphere at the party. And of course, Lavinia's uh, instinct is to say something pleasant and non-divisive. And here we see that Meredith won't play the game anymore. He's had enough. So he deliberately makes a remark that creates a scene. When you're ruined, there's so much to do. When you're ruined, there's so much to do. Yes, there is, isn't and of course, William doesn't care now. He's, he's, you can see he's sick of them all, really, except for Louisa, who he has a soft spot for, which, of course, irritates Sylvia. Did anybody care for a game of bridge? Again, Constance's instinct, like all of those women, is to kind of normalise. Louisa, how about you? And now we hear that the card story is true. I've never been very lucky with them. Me too. Because she cut lower than Sylvia and didn't marry him. It's almost the only time Sylvia ever addresses a remark to Weissman, and it's simply to kind of loosen up the conversation, which is awkward and heavy. He, of course, strives to be pleasant. But Maggie Smith's character immediately puts him down. My mother-in-law actually said of one of my programmes I was in, oh, I'd never watch it. So it gave me the idea for this. Just a kind of total rejection of modern values again. We're going to shoot it in Hollywood on the back lot. But since I was in England, I thought I would do a little research... The point of this dinner is everything is beginning to break up, that, that they're all slightly being less careful about showing who they dislike and how irritated they are, which is led off by Meredith. And now we soon see Sylvia, who's had enough. Her teasing goes one step beyond the dinner. Well, I know you're interested in money and fiddling with your guns, but I admit it, when it comes to anything else, I'm stumped. That's it, that is not fair, Billy. <laughs> Of course, Elsie has revealed an, an intimate relationship simply by speaking. And in the early production stages of this, one of the producers said, well, how will the audience know she's not supposed to speak at dinner? Uh, and Bob Altman said, if we've done it right, they'll know. And he did it right, and they do know. I was very relieved when I saw it for the first time in a public cinema that when Elsie spoke, there was actually a gasp in the audience because you realised that she had gone through the glass wall. She had broken the reality of the way they were living. He, of course, is hideously embarrassed because his affair with the maid has now been revealed to the entire house party, which is hugely amusing to the first footman, although, again, he conceals it, really. She knows from this moment on that she has lost her job and she's lost her home, that in no household would she be forgiven that indiscretion. Elsie, what? And so she is essentially now without an income or prospects or... Um, she thinks at this stage um, a good reference. Of course, in fact, as we later hear, they probably will give her a good reference to avoid scandal. 
Again, the strongest um, instinct of these people is always to re-normalise. So if there has been a scene, if someone's shouted or run out of the room, whatever it is, immediately someone will say, oh, you know, let's all play bridge, or did you see the latest something or other, or whatever, to get things back to normal. What, what one mustn't do is my stepmother once said at a similar dinner, now don't let's get psychological. Because to get psychological, to get inside any of these problems, is somehow to shatter the kind of form by which they live. And, you know, it sounds if I'm critical, actually, I'm, part of me that's almost that kind of admires it, really, that they do live under these tremendous disciplines to keep the whole show on the road. Now, Jennings is profoundly offended because there are servants in this room who have no business in it. They have come up because of the scene to find out what happened. And that's one of our clues. Dorothy, I'm especially surprised at you. And from that, of course, her wounded expression, we later learn things. They're picking for partners here at Bridge. The four highest will play and the others will not, which in this case is Jeremy Blonde. He picked the lowest card, so he is not part of it. Here, Sylvia is making it perfectly plain as to why entertainers are asked to house parties. It is usually to be jesters. Uh, they are not, even though in this case Sylvia obviously quite likes him and he is a cousin of William, his job really is to entertain and play the piano and generally keep things moving. You're providing a lot of entertainment for nothing. Morris, I'm used to it. He's used to it because that's why he would have been asked normally, for the, by these people. Somewhere there's another man. Here we see the whole business of the rejection of popular culture by the upper classes here represented and led by Constance, who actually prevents the young people enjoying the music. Mabel, of course, who comes from the middle class, uh, represents the ordinary population who, of course, were fine with the forms of entertainment that the 20th century had thrown up. Uh, and really, they despise her for it, but we can see that she belongs to the future and they don't. I um I find Mabel very poignant in this scene actually. The others, Sylvia, Louisa, it's just it's Muzak. They don't they don't care about it. In fact, they get bored with it because it isn't part of the sort of expression of their self. Whereas here, of course, we see Lewis dragging Probert up to participate. I mean, for them, the tremendous excitement for the staff of having a major star. I mean, Ivan Novello at that time had been a big film star and also had written songs and uh, was known for all that. Terribly thrilling to have him in the house and see him in the flesh. So we have an absolute contrast in the response of the two classes to this performer. All right, surprise me. Maybe I will. Little treats of plot. There is something, I, I think, very moving in their total enjoyment, as opposed to the rather self-conscious resistance to it that's going on in the drawing room. Will you, um, excuse me for Now we start on all our various red herrings. You can leave a bridge table because um, whenever the, someone has won the bidding, um, the, the person who wins the bidding plays the hand and their partner is called the dummy and they put their cards down on the table and they then don't play the rest of that hand. The other two play. So that bridge, although a game for four, is always actually being played by three people. Um, of course, Freddie stays away from the table 
too long. So eventually Jeremy Blonde takes over his seat. Here is another red herring. Again, we have this thing of people disposed around the drawing room, talking about this, talking about that. Um, in their rather self-consciously relaxed way. Of course, the servants here are all pretending to be working because they shouldn't be listening. But Meredith doesn't really care. Now, normally, one clue here, which, of course, no one will really get, except for me, is that a cup of coffee would never be served like this. It would be brought in on a tray and it would be brought in with the pot. But uh, for reasons that we discovered, she cannot allow um, that amount of liquid. She has to have a small amount of liquid that's in the cup. So she just brings in the one cup. Actually, Michael Gambon is in real life a gun expert. We wanted uh, William to have a hobby, and Bob thought it would be good if he had his own hobby, which is guns, because that makes him do it in a very knowledgeable way. You can sort of see from his action here that he knows what he's doing. Um, that's really, the, hopefully, the hallmark of the film, that everyone seems to be doing something they are very familiar with. They know what they're doing. I thought you might need a drink. Well, Denton is a completely unstoppable character. I mean, there are people in life who believe that they are so attractive that everyone, man, woman or child, uh, is anxious to get off with them. In some cases, they're almost correct, really. But what, they're, what they don't allow for is that if you're over the age of 25, you realise that, on the whole, the complication will not be worth it. A lovely long repertoire. A lovely long repertoire. I love that line, although I suppose it's rather vain to say so. This is Mabel's one moment of happiness, really, um, when she's allowed to feel, because he invites her to sit with him, that she is something. She's not nothing in the way that Freddie treats her. And, of course, during the film, she becomes strong. She realises, ultimately, that whether she's common or not common, she is actually a stronger, more interesting and more worthwhile personality than her husband. Novello, in a way, is simply pleasing her in the way that entertainers do. He's flirting with her and all the rest of it, despite the fact that he couldn't have been less interested in her, both because he was homosexual and also because she's not particularly his type. But I think part of being an entertainer is that feeling that you, you're, almost your responsibility is to entertain and please. Uh, and Novello had that. You have a very romantic image, this, I think, of the um, servants on the staircase. This is, again, an illustration of the business that Dorothy, the still room maid, was under both housekeeper and cook, and they fight it out here. They use Dorothy as an expression of their rivalry. Because the still room was a sort of lesser kitchen where jams and breakfast and things were done. The breakfast trays were laid, uh, the pies were made, and, and drinks were literally the distillery room. It had been originally, but it was called the still room. But she was also a maid, and so could be given maid duties, as she here is... Um, used to 
I can't remember if we've still got the scene where she looks into Isabel. I think not. But she would also do some maiding, as Elsie says, of visitors. This is almost the only moment when the entire house, or it is the only moment when the entire household is engaged in the same activity. They are all listening to Novello in different parts of the house. Uh, it helps the geography of the house, but also um, it, it creates a kind of rather still centre of the film, I think. Now here we see Constance actually preventing them enjoying it. Of course, Jennings adores it. Jennings is partly based uh, on a character, or actually a pair of characters called Bowles and Bacon, who were the butlers of a very famous hostess at this time called the Honourable Mrs Ronnie Greville, who had a house called Poles and Lacey, where, among others, uh, the present Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother and the King George VI had their honeymoon. For some curious reason that nobody ever really understood, she had these two butlers who were absolutely plastered. There was a famous moment when she wrote a note to Bowles and handed it to him saying, you are drunk, leave the room at once. And without a pause, he put it on a silver salver and took it up to Austin Chamberlain, the minister who was sitting at the other end of the dining room table. Chamberlain read it and remained completely silent for the rest of the dinner. Nobody ever knew why she didn't fire them. Jennings, of course, in a way, just keeps it all within bounds. This is all plot, 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 plot. Fun, really. I always enjoy Isabel Camilla Rutherford's sort of earnest card playing as if her life depended on it. There's a wonderful portrait there on the left. You can just see of Cora, Countess of Strafford, one of the women who had presided over this particular house. She was one of the great American heiresses who arrived and uh, saved the bacon of the Bing family, the Earls of Strafford, who lived in the house, Rutum Park. It's by Sargent. And we have these contrasts of all the different things that are going on in the different parts of the house. He wishes, of course, to leave muddy footprints to show that he's coming from the outside, which obviously he hasn't. Poor Michael Gambon. Those scenes are always quite hard. I remember being stabbed in the back in something when I was acting in some series. It was really painful. By this stage, Louisa and Sylvia are as bored with the music as everyone else is. Weissman on the telephone is a sort of uh, expression of the 20th century that was waiting outside this house. He's talking to California all the time. He's talking about films. He uses language, um, which although at the time was certainly used by Harry Cohn, who's head of Columbia and various other people, was not used by these people. And so it is shocking to them. As later we have Maggie saying, um, coming downstairs just now, I thought I'd been transported to a bar in Marseille. Uh, the swearing that came uh, from America and um, and also actually came from the working class uh, is now throughout English society, but wasn't then particularly. It, these words were used very rarely. At the beginning, Meredith says it under his breath and uh, in the tea scene, and from that we really can gauge how desperate he is. And even then he doesn't say it so anyone can hear it. If that's what you call a moment, I'd like to see what happens when you take a real break. 
was that Butler ordered the footmen. I mean, in a way, it was all very military, really. There was there was an absolute series of ranks, and and they maintained them. And of course, the butler of a house like this was a very great figure, which one can forget. The monogrammed um, hot water bottle covers, I I like. Hot water bottles were given in most houses. I still stay stay in one in Cornwall, actually, where you get a hot water bottle, because um, the heating was deficient, to say the least. And they were very needed. It was long before electric blankets and all those things. Everyone hates the dog. And now we have our moment of high drama. The scream uh, was actually done by um, a woman who worked in a jewellery shop called um, Tessier in Bond Street. She had this fabulous scream. So that was the one that was used. All the jewels were real. Uh, I felt I didn't... I thought it was very, very important. Well, um, Bob felt very important not to have those sort of plastic baubles that you sometimes see. So this a woman used to arrive with this suitcase of jewels and the sort of armed guard every day. It was rather exciting. The actresses loved it, of course, as they were all wearing a king's ransom around their necks. Now we have, because of the listening, this is the one moment when upstairs and downstairs are basically all in the same place. They all come in and everyone is milling around and you suddenly actually realise in a way how many people are in this house and even that is without the kitchen staff or anyone else downstairs, you know, the hall boys and that kind of thing. And here we see Raymond, of course, the, the military hero we've heard about. Suddenly he takes over. I'm on a call to California. Hello. Yes, would you connect me with the police station, please? Poor Mary, she's constantly given the sense of Parks's uh, involvement, which she resists, but it is in those little moments when he's missing before, when she's listening in the billiard room and so on. Bob thought of the idea of um, Weissman actually making Charlie Chan in London, which was a real film that was being uh, put into pre-production around this time. I think it came out at the end of 33. Uh, it's not really known now, apart from being the first film of someone called Raymond Milland. Uh, but it seemed more fun to have a specific film he was making rather than a kind of generalised one. And all the references that Weissman makes when he's talking about the studio's attempts to reintroduce Clara Bow or uh, any of that other stuff are all true. Um, and his difficulty with the head of studio and so on. Don't worry about him, he's just an American who's staying with us. I love that. We immediately see that none of them are interested in the death of William. But of course, this is also exploring. Uh, the, the vanity of people like Thompson in this society who imagine that because in the police station he would be upstairs rather than downstairs, he has some connection with upstairs people when he meets them. Of course, in fact, he has absolutely none. To them, he is no different from the man who brings the groceries to the back door. But he, of course, can't address or face that and really spends the rest of his time in the film trying to be taken seriously as a social equal. This is when the unlucky unfortunate dog goes downstairs to have the second half of his unpleasant time in the film. Poor little dog actually got rather depressed because every time they said action, everyone had to dislike it. What about Claudia Colbert? Isn't she, she's British, isn't she? She sounds British. 
Is she like affected or is she British? You see already, even Jennings doesn't like the dog. He immediately gives it away to Dorothy, who just as quickly passes it on. Come on, spin it out. The police would like to see you for a moment. Me? No, Mrs Croft, Mr Probert. Me? Derek Jacobi has a very subtle performance in this. In fact, there was a whole other plot about the fact that William had made a new will and he hadn't signed it. Um, And Probert had quite a long couple of scenes about that. Um, And I was very sad when they were taken out for sort of length and the general momentum of the film because it affected the Stockbridges and Probert because Louisa had been left some money in the new will. Uh, but I think even without them, it, that sense that Probert isn't obsessed with William like Lewis is obsessed with Sylvia, but he is sort of genuinely devoted. I think he's very touching. Now, this is the moment that Denton realises he can't... It's all got too complicated now. There's been a murder. He's got to sort things out. I have a confession to make. Right, no, but I think it's clear that... The assumption that um, Elsie has lost her job and is only waiting to be released by the police, of course, that would absolutely be true. There'd be no question of appeal or anything else after having spoken out like that at dinner. This is just Bob having some fun with Paul Probert. Here, um, the, the tradition uh, that we're playing with here really is that of Charlie Chan and a lot of those other films where the assistant constable is infinitely more intelligent than the inspector and we can see that he understands the elements uh, when, of course, uh, Stephen's character, Inspector Thompson, doesn't. Oh! Yes, well, you see, this is why we have rules and regulations, isn't it? This whole area, really, Bob is just having a game with the traditional form of the whodunit. It isn't really, of course, what the film is about. Now, we understand that the one person who minds about William's death is Louisa, because, of course, she wishes she'd married him, but you notice that she didn't cry in the drawing room. She only cries when she can get up into her own bedroom. But Raymond is irritated by it and, in fact, has what is possibly my favourite line in the film... Do stop snivelling. Anyone would think you were Italian. That came because my wife was taking Italian classes one day and I came back. She was being very mad, sort of jumping around and shrieking. I said, just because you're learning Italian doesn't mean you have to be Italian. And I remembered that when I was writing that. Thank you, my lady, she says, for giving her old eyelashes. But she's worried. She's she's worried that she's leaving Sylvia, having to get out of her own frock, which of course is almost too much. And here you see, in Kristen's, I think, marvelously well judged performance, this is the one moment when she starts to consider her changed circumstance and what it actually entails. She is a widow now, and a great deal will alter. She doesn't... Please tell me you haven't come with condolences. ...know quite how to deal with this. I was just wondering if you want some... Another of my favourite lines, well, I suppose life must go on. 
Actually, that condolence line was funny. When we were filming it, because Christine is bilingual, she kept saying condolences, because, of course, in French it's condolences. And uh, she had to actually force herself to go to the English pronunciation. I suppose life must go on. The wonderful business-like way in which she prepares for lovemaking here, uh, I think, tells you everything you need to know about Sylvia's attitude to sex. This is not love. This is sex. You'll never get it undone like that. This is Elsie's dream life. And of course now her real life is temporarily in ruins. But she's strong and she will rebuild. She refuses pity here. She doesn't see herself as a victim at all. And she is irritated by Mary making her a victim. So that's why she says you must feel sorry for Dorothy. I would think Mrs. Bill might stay in bed tomorrow. Unmarried girls don't have breakfast trays. Unmarried girls don't have breakfast trays. As I've said, that was true in a great many houses indeed. In one of my great aunt's houses. Actually, that particular aunt, I was always rather fond of the idea of her because she used to spend every, every week, she used to spend Friday entirely in bed in the dark and drink only water. And when her guests arrived, they were shown to their rooms by the servants and they dined without her and then she would get up on Saturday morning. As a result, when she was 70, she looked about 45. It's a luxury that I don't think most of us can afford these days. Now, the whole role of Denton pretending to be a valet and really being a friend of Weissman and Novello is a betrayal because he has refused to play his part. He has deceived them. He has deceived them below stairs. He has deceived them above stairs. And as a result, they all dislike him for it, the servants and the house party. Nobody likes Denton once it's come out that he's been play-acting because they feel he's made a fool of them. And you'll see that he is punished by both groups. Sometimes the menus of the day went up on the tray, as they do here. Sometimes um, they were discussed when the lady of the house came downstairs. But why one of the knives from the silver pantry? Doesn't make sense. He must have forgotten to bring one. I love that. He must have forgotten to bring one. All those jimmies and torches. And skeleton keys. It's a miracle anyone ever gets burgled at all. Oh, it's glacial. Constance's sort of practical response is it's a miracle anyone ever gets burgled at all. Uh, the point is, she's curious about it, but she is not emotionally involved. Uh, she says later, I, I should have thought it was a good idea to have someone in the house who's actually sorry he's dead. All she's doing is just kind of toying with the idea of how it happened. I think Lady Lavinia may be. Now, if a married woman is getting up for breakfast, it means that the conversation at breakfast is going to be worth attending to. And so Constance is going to make the supreme effort because, as she says, she doesn't want to miss anything. When I came back last night, I found this. The point of Elsie and Isabel's relationship is that often you found then and now, actually, that the children of a house have a different relationship with the servants. They've been young. Um, they weren't treated in quite the same way. For instance, the children always had to call the butler Mr Jennings, Mr Snooks. It was considered very ill-bred for the child of a house just to say Jennings, as the adults would. Um, and, of course, the servants and children got fond of each other, and you often find... I mean, my own mother and her sisters were devoted to the nursery maid, not particularly to their nanny, actually, who they didn't like very much, but the nursery maid they really adored and used to correspond with her long after they'd all grown up and 
thing had broken up. And um, the relationship between Elsie and Isabel is sort of part of that, just showing how it could come about. It's not a forced friendship. And here she is in civilian clothes, just having a chat and a cigarette. Now, this is a key moment. You're not in any difficulty. You're not in any difficulty, are you? She touches her stomach. No, she is not pregnant. Yes, I was forgetting. You were much cleverer than I was. You're much cleverer than I was. In other words, Isabel has been pregnant. And since there is no talk of anything else, presumably had an abortion. And that, of course, is what Freddie knows about. And from that, we assume he is the father of the child. And uh, that's what, the, what he held over her to try and get her to make William give him a job. But again, it's one of those plots that if you miss that line because you're eating your ice cream or whatever, um, then you don't really get it. We never tell you again. Who is he then? Do you think he's a murderer? It's worse than that. He's an actor. Our little Jess, but of course it's also to show that Parks is totally uninvolved in the death of William. He couldn't care less. Now, this is all the servants. Their job was to clean. You see the man there doing light bulbs, checking the light bulbs, the hall boy. This is all before breakfast, so that the rooms were done, clean, polished, the fires laid and lit. By the time the family either came out of their bedrooms or out of the dining room. Uh, that was a great matter of pride, that, that you didn't see any cleaning going on. It was all done, um, except for things like silver or whatever that could be cleaned downstairs. Breakfast, as you see here in any great house, is done on entirely different lines to any of the other feeds, that you sit where you like, uh, there's no man-woman, man-woman thing. There's no precedence. And you always, always help yourself. Uh, to have um, a servant come round with anything at breakfast is, was considered incredibly ill-bred. Sometimes, as here, the butler will be there just to kind of check that everything's going all right and perhaps to, you know, give you a bit of a cup of coffee or something when you got up. But even he wouldn't dream of picking up a plate of food, as he now tells Weissman. It's nearly a reprimand. Perhaps you prepare to help yourself. Of course, Maggie here shows so clearly that she judges Weissman because he doesn't know the rules. Um, in a way, it is a, a whole world where there's this sort of rule book where they despise people who don't know the rules, but they don't give them the book. Weissman is quite independent there. An Englishman is never waited on at breakfast, and the American is. He's, he's, he's not going to be put down. Now, here we see that the upstairs people don't like Henry Denton any more than the downstairs because he's made a fool of the whole system. He's had a sort of joke. And here Jennings reprimands him. There it is, sir. He's not even going to pour him a cup. Good. Good morning, ladies, gents. <coughs> um, I wonder, excuse me, uh, will Lady Sylvia... Here is the assumption, of course, that Sylvia's day will be changed by the fact that her husband has been murdered. They all know better. Yes, but she won't be doing that this morning, will she? Yes, of course she will. Oh, I see. Well, uh, Also here with Constance, you have this sort of presentation of these women, that they were all, you know, working all the time. I suppose we all have to pull our weight, she says, as if she's ever done anything. Um, but there was this self-image that they were all very hardworking. And, of course, in a way, they were tough. You know, they did sort of load the guns at Lucknow and things, because that was their picture of themselves, that they were hard-working women. That was their armour, really. 
Here, uh, the point of this is to show that the kitchen maids, they're not at all sad at William's death. They didn't know him. They're interested by it, and they're interested by the double death and all of that. But they have a good laugh about it. They've never spoken two words to him. Trust Sir William to be murdered twice. Ha, 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 ha. Of course, Jennings' instinct, like that of the upper classes, is to normalise. He may have been murdered, but it's not that sort of murder. It's just a sort of horrible accident, uh, a ruffian. Uh, so there's no psychological or emotional complications. That's what must be avoided. Of course, the first footman, George, understands that that's complete nonsense uh, because of the nature of the death. Here we see the footman cleaning silver. That was one of their main duties under the um, butler's orders. Uh, and I think the point was to show that the whole house would keep rolling on, that all their normal activities would not be disturbed by the death. Um, and they're working away. Of course, we have a little bit of plot here with Alan doing a man with secrets. And here you see it, um, the, the sort of independence, in a way, of the relationship between the cook and the mistress, which, was, which wasn't uncommon. Has Lady Sylvia come back yet? No. Then she'll have to take what she gets. Uh, you know, the house has to move on. In a way, the master and mistress were like the sort of captain uh, of a ship, but it didn't mean that everyone in the engine room had to ask their permission for everything. Uh, their job was to produce the luncheon or the dinner or whatever. Uh, and yes, if Sylvia's there to discuss the menus, fine. But if she isn't, it must all go ahead anyway. Uh, the ha these houses were a sort of automaton, kind of rolling forward. Now we have a little bit of plot. This plot um, is very, very loosely based on uh, a chap called William Whiteley, who used to have a, uh, a chain of, of, stock, of shops in the sort of late 19th, early 20th century. And he used his workforce much as we are told here. Uh, that he used, that um, William used his, and the girls were dismissed if they got pregnant. And in fact, many, many years later, someone came up to Whiteley and said, there's a young man waiting for you downstairs. He went down, uh, and the chap said, I'm your son, and shot him. That, of course, is not what happens in this film, but it did slightly give me the idea, because I wanted the spinal plot, if you like, to be something that involved upstairs and downstairs. Now here, Mary tells a lie for her mistress. And it's never really explained why, but in my own head, the reason she does it is that she understands that her job, in a way, is to protect Constance. I mean, there's no question that Constance is guilty. Obviously, she's not guilty, which Mary knows very well. And knowing her, knowing that, she is determined not to put her in trouble with the police. So she says, I wasn't aware there was any difficulty between them. They got on well, as far as I could see. All of which she knows is absolutely untrue, and also that question of the allowance. She was there in the bedroom and they were discussing the allowance. But she makes the decision to lie. Uh, and in a sense, she becomes complicit uh, with Constance. You see, Constance thinks Mary is going to speak up and she is, of course, immediately very relieved and triumphant when she doesn't. Uh, it strengthens. Actually, we've lost a scene when you saw that the relationship between the two women had become stronger because it was part of the will plot. Uh, but I think you sense it anyway that they are now much more lié. Here with Dorothy, um, I, want, I think I've talked about it earlier, but I wanted to examine that business of when you have people in your life and you think they're acquaintances or, you know, they mildly like you or dislike you, whatever it is, but in fact they have a passionate relationship with you. They are madly in love with you. They absolutely loathe you. And you never guessed it at all. And then some chance exchange or incident suddenly opens your eyes to this chasm of feeling. Uh, and 
Jennings here realises, of course he knew before that Dorothy was rather a favourite of his and he's sort of said that at the dinner. He's said how disappointed he was. But here she offers to lie to the police for him. And, of course, it's A, worrying. Does she know his secret or does she simply know there is a secret? Uh, which we never find out. We know that she knows somehow that he has a secret, but whether she knows what it is or not, we don't know. But she offers to lie to the police. Now, that, of course, is almost as bold a statement of love as if she'd stripped off. And he finds it deeply unsettling that he has excited these feelings in her bosom because he simply doesn't know how to respond. Um, and I think that, that happens to all of us at once or twice in our lives. You suddenly think, blimey, I didn't know they felt like that at all. Here, Sylvia completely puts Thompson into his place because putting the milk in first when you're pouring tea is a habit of the middle classes. The upper classes and the working classes put the milk in afterwards. And uh, it's a sort of genteel thing. And by Sylvia asking him to put the milk in afterwards, as she does, what she is saying is, you are not a member of my tribe and do not imagine that I am treating you as such because I am not. And here, of course, we, we hear that Elsie is going to get a good reference because it was impossible to give her a bad reference without in some way saying that she'd been having an affair with William. Um, of course, the, the way references did not really reflect uh, the true story quite often was the subject of some jokes of the period. After this scene, there was a rather marvellous moment of when um, Jennings was decanting some port. And, um, Arthur Inch brought in all the kind of equipment of the candle and the, and the cambric handkerchief and the funnel and the this, that and the other. I was rather sorry it went. Here we see the last attempt by Arthur to dress Ivan Avello, his romantic ideal. I don't mind, Mr. Jennings. But no, he's not to be allowed to. The matter-of-fact exchange of duties, of course, uh, is quite interesting to us, but, you know, you valet one man, you can valet another. Um, the strangeness of being helped to dress or running a bath or this or the other, which for most... Of the, I mean, most of the population has been waited on at table. There's nothing strange in that because if they've ever eaten in a restaurant, they know what that's like. But the intimacy of, of uh, the personal servant is something that I think is almost shocking to our generation at times. Yeah, we're exploring Barnes's dislike of Meredith. He knows he's not guilty. He knows he hasn't really done anything. But um, he is deliberately trying to get him into trouble because that's sort of his only way of expressing his dislike. When earlier on the maid says, why don't you hand in your notice? In that moment, we know Barnes is a coward. He's not prepared to actually give up his job. He would rather go on serving a man he dislikes intensely than try and face the job market. He's not a very sympathetic character to me, anyway. But, of course, it is, again, that point that you could be served by people who disliked you. In fact, in the 18th century, one of the severest punishments was meted out to a servant who murdered his master because what's frightening about this way of life is that all the time you were letting complete strangers into your house in, in terms of the greatest intimacy and um, as some sort of protection for employers. If you stole from or, worse, harmed physically your master or mistress, you were always hanged. There was absolutely no appeal. Uh, and only this very draconian 
A justice was deemed kind of adequate to protect you from the danger of strangers. Not by this time, of course, that was all I'm talking about the 18th century. And here again, we see that Henry Denton's joke is not funny to either upstairs or down because he has refused to play by the rules, which, of course, all the others are playing by. Even, even Parks doesn't like him for it, or Mary. Perhaps you better enjoy your fun in the drawing room. I'm afraid you'll repeat things, be indiscreet. But I'm very discreet. In Hollywood, that's what I'm known for, my discretion. Of course, he, he never gives up old Denton. This is one cheat here. You would never actually see a footman coming up the main staircase unaccompanied by, say, unless there was an absolute reason for him to be carrying something. And even then he'd go up the back stairs, but it was simply to move the camera up here. That was one battle that I lost. He would always use the service staircase. Now we see Freddie's personal justification of his story. All I wanted was a job. You talk as if I'm enjoying this. No, I've been with the police. When they cast Tom Hollander in this, originally Meredith was an army officer, but he was too short to have been an army officer, so he was made into a naval commander. Uh, and when I altered the lines to fit um, Tom, I came up with this one that I really enjoy. When a man's as short as you are, it must be hard to gauge the height of the birds. Very well, my lord. What? I saw you. Of course, it was an accident. See, Meredith did do the shot, which again, up to this point, we've assumed he didn't. He is completely deserted now by his own family upstairs and generally, and as he sees it, ruined. Mr. Jennings, I've washed him and dressed him. If he can't find his way to the drawing room, it isn't my fault. Barnes loathes him, of course. The point of this scene is to show that Meredith has to go downstairs and talk to Dorothy before he can understand that he has something in his marriage of far greater value than either of the two sisters-in-law that he envies. He is the only one in love with his wife, and she is in love with him. Until now, he has judged his own life by the standards of upstairs. In other words, because he has no money, because he has no success in any business, uh, uh, whatever you call it, that he tries to get involved in, uh, he feels his life is valueless. He is simply a failure. But, of course, when Dorothy says, I believe in love, not just getting it, but giving it, uh, as long as there's someone you can love, then, uh, you know, then it's worth it. He, of course, then realises that he alone in that family is in love with his partner. Uh, and far from being the man who has least, he is the man who has most. But he has to come out of his own class in order to learn that, because within the upper classes, failure and lack of money is the great crime. And it is far better to be married to someone who you, you know, dislike or, or, or at least don't respect, who is a success and will give you status and a fortune and everything else, uh, than it is to be a failure. And in this scene, he re-examines those values. Do you believe in luck? Some men just aren't, and there's nothing they can do about it. And, of course, he believes himself to be the unluckiest man alive, but now she gives him the opposite philosophy. I think as long as you can love somebody, whether or not they love you, then it's worth it. Uh... Of course, she is astonished here at her own sort of temerity in speaking out to an upstairs person like this. But they are, in a way, both victims. And they are the natural partnering in this house. They are the two affectionate people that life has been quite hard on. 
but he sees it is, as he says, a good answer. But it is true, I mean, I could name, although I certainly won't, at least eight peeresses who are married to men who, I mean, this is today, 2002, who they wouldn't have looked at if it wasn't for uh, what came with them. And I, I often wonder, you know, if it's worth it when they're alone together in the middle of the night. Here we see Rupert attempting to pursue his romance with Isabel the heiress. This line about travelling light was actually in an earlier scene. Mabel's so sensible to travel light. Uh, and then it was cut for some reason or other, and Maggie liked it and so did I, so we found another place to drop it in. But difficult colour green is Maggie's addendum. That, that one she wrote. Always makes me laugh, actually. Here, of course... Uh, Sylvia's dislike and irritation with Denton is because by pretending to be a servant and now not being, she is forced to sit in the drawing room with a man who has become her lover, exactly what she wants to avoid. She likes to keep the two parts of her world separate. And so uh, she's furious with him for tricking her in that way. He tries this rather clumsy pleasantry to get her moving. She doesn't even bother to respond. She just goes on reading her magazine. Now we understand here how Mabel has been strengthened by all the activities that have been going on. Louisa the bereaved, alone in the house, unhappy at his death. And here Anthony Meredith, of course, kisses his wife in front of everyone as a kind of gesture of defiance, just as Mabel is defiant. She really is stronger than Freddie, and he has forced her to believe that um, she wasn't because she is not as posh. But during this party, she has discover that actually she is stronger. She has a stronger will. It's a kind of, um, in a way, theme that Ayn Rand explored in some of her books, that it, there's a sort of manipulation going on, that when people marry unequally, uh, for a time, some person seemed to be the stronger or the weaker, but the real truths of that will come through in the end. George has his revenge on Denton, and of course, both upstairs and down are delighted. Silver is delighted, Raymond laughs, Constance laughs because they all think he's a horrible little squid for making fools of them, really, by not playing by the rules. Yeah, they were fishing parts of her body up the Thames from Richmond or Some more tea, Constable. I'll take that, thank you, Bertha. Here, poor Probert is doing his last duties. You see, the downstairs um, kitchen maid is the one who says, What's the point in that? Because she doesn't have any idea of the actual relationship that would exist between the employer and the employee because it wouldn't have applied to her position in the house. There's always this sort of slight difference between the servants who go upstairs and the ones who don't. And here we have a very key moment when um, Thompson says he's only interested in people who had a real connection with the dead man. Of course, everyone in the room knows that Elsie was the dead man's mistress and yet nobody says anything because there's always this sense of kind of closing ranks. People with a real connection with the dead man. Thank you. Do you have a light, Inspector? This is the end of Thompson sort of fumbling on. You always see here, which you sometimes miss on the first viewing, that Mrs Croft only comes into this room if Mrs Wilson has left. When Mrs Wilson comes back, she leaves uh, and so on. She will not be in the same room with her. This little song that comes out of the 
uh, radio uh, at this point was written for the film. It's the only one that was. It's not an old real song, and um, Bob Altman did the lyrics. Here we finally resolve who was in the ironing room at the beginning of the film that night. Uh, of course, it was Jeremy Blonde. This business of the young men sort of starting their careers with uh, the members of the staff was, was quite usual, really. Uh, I mean, it wasn't invariable, but quite usual. One of my uncles started with one of the kitchen maids of his brother. Uh, it was all quite cheery. Was for me the character of Bertha is about one of the central truths of life, which is that if you want to have a very lively sex life, the most important uh, qualification is to be available. Far beyond beautiful or any of those things, there is something something about somebody who transmits the possibility of a sexual adventure that is not going to be complicated by demands, that is to many men quite irresistible, no matter in what form it comes. In, the, in real life, the naughty ones were more usually in the laundry, which we don't really go into in this film, because they were outside the main body of the house. So in a sense, they were a sort of maverick group of outside women workers. But nevertheless, the same general idea holds. The point of this scene is I, I just wanted people to have a slight rethink about William. I, I always like for the audience, just when they've made their mind up, suddenly reconsider it slightly. Nobody likes William very much. The audience don't find him attractive. And yet in this moment, you suddenly see what he did have for Elsie. He only talked to her because he was sick of um, Sylvia, as she says. But the things he said were constructive and generous. You know, he says, you've got to go for it. And if you want it enough, it'll happen and so on. And he has sort of empowered Elsie in a way. So this late date in the film, we have a little bit of a rethink about William, he wasn't all bad. What did I say? Where are you going? Also, of course, from this, uh, Mary suddenly decides that she cannot go home without knowing the truth. She's had all these moments of suspicion about Parks, and we've seen her watch him, and, you know, um, when you said yesterday you were going to surprise me, you didn't mean anything by it, did you? Why don't you like surprises? And she just has got to have it out with him, even at the risk of losing her job and being up in the room. Of course, she knows he's alone in his bedroom now because Henry has been moved down into the body of the house. So. Not really. I really hate him, you see. Not enough to kill him. She can't understand, at least she doesn't want to believe that there was a relationship between them because if there was, then he might be involved in it. You didn't know him. You'd have to hate him and why would you? Can't a man hate his own father? And here we get back to the Whiteley plot um, where he would have various babies by was my father. his female employees. He didn't know it. Because even in those days, it didn't happen all that often. It wasn't as if you were trying to get rid of 20 babies a year. Uh, but there was a certain automatic mechanical plan that comes into play when you you make that life choice. Whiteley, in a way, was more heartless than William because he just used to sack the girls that got pregnant. That was that. 
But uh, William gives them this option of giving up the child and keeping their job. Found this photograph, and they had my admission form. I was two days old. Guess who brought me to the door? Robert, that doesn't mean that Yes, you... it does. After that, I found out she works in one of his factories. What's interesting to me about Parks is that you can see that up to this point, his one great motivational force has been to revenge himself and his presumed dead mother, who was ruined by William and, as he imagines, died. Um, and that has been his great sort of central thing. But now it's over. And I'm always rather fascinated by people who set themselves a single goal, you know, whether it's climbing Everest or whatever. What happens then? when they've done it. What do we think will happen to Parks? Will he stay with Stockbridge? I don't think he'll stay in service at all. I think all of that is over now because it's clear uh, in this scene that he took, we know he's not been with Stockbridge long, uh, that he took the job in order to, to get close to William, as, as Mary says. So all of his choices have been really directed towards this revenge, which is now finished. No one could stab a corpse and not know it. Really? When was the last time you stabbed a corpse? The fact that he's able to joke, was the last time you stabbed a corpse, uh, shows that he is without remorse. In fact, he didn't kill him. Uh, but that's only because he was already dead. He would have killed him. And he is perfectly at peace with that. He believed he was right to revenge himself on William. And the fact that someone else got there first doesn't bother him. But it wouldn't bother him if he had killed him. I like that element in him because it's sort of frightening. And it's not as if... You know, he's now saying, oh, I don't know how I could have done it. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so glad it wasn't me. It didn't bother him. I've been wanting to do that ever since I first set eyes on you. I suppose I rather admire people who make their life choices and then stick to them. There was a pressure at one point for saying, oh, why don't they stay and why don't they go to bed together and all the rest of it. Uh, and Bob Altman felt very strongly that if we'd done the film right just for her to kiss him was enough and it was totally out of character for her, particularly at that period, to do any more and mercifully that obtained. I think he was 100% correct. Now here's the time when Jennings is drunkenness finally breaks its banks. Even now we don't quite know why. We do before the end of the film. But Mrs Wilson, although she's never shown any great affection for Jennings, uh, her professional sense of pride. I mean, no one must see him like this. There mustn't be any sense in the household that there is a sort of unworthy figure at the head of it. They must cover for Jennings uh, as an authority figure and get him into bed. And that's what's operating here. This Again, this maintenance of form that you see in every part of this way of life. It's always that form must be observed. Of course, we have a little bit of fun here with Dorothy when she's told to take off his trousers. She reveres him and loves him, but of course is terrified by that. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. Take his trousers off. Come on. Mrs. Wilson, of course, ever the practical, has no such qualms. I love the way Sophie holds her arms out. This scene uh, sums up the philosophy of the film in a way that the little maid is played by Finty Williams, Judy Dench's daughter. Uh, and she says the line, You can't be on both teams at once. Uh, which is really where Henry has has broken faith with both upstairs and down. 
Of course, having the fire lit before you wake up with the maid with her gloves and everything is a luxury that's pretty well vanished. Now, although I do remember it, I had it once in a house in Cheshire, waking up and seeing the maid crouch down by the hearth, moving the uh, coals very carefully in order to light it without waking me. Actually, of course, Eileen Atkins had a bad throat when we were filming this, and so we put in this bit about the fags, but I think it works quite well. I'm sorry if I shock you, Bertha, but the plain fact is he only got what he deserved. There. She has a colder dislike of William than Mrs Wilson's, of course, is more observed, but I think it works well. Also in this scene, we discover that far from Bertha having got up to all her naughtiness without anyone knowing, Mrs Croft knows perfectly well what's been going on. And even if it did, I know I couldn't part with my baby, not just to hang on to a job. Oh, I'm very glad to hear it. And, of course, uh, we know that she has her own dead child. We begin to have our suspicions about that. This is the end of the poison plot, and now we're about to discover Jennings's secret. The whole business of conscientious objection uh, was a curiously sort of touchy one then. Uh, they presented themselves as pacifists, but, of course, society chose to see them as cowards. And uh, my premise with Jennings was that, in the end, he came to see himself as a coward, that he didn't have the courage of his own uh, principle. And he came to believe that he had dodged service in order to escape fighting. And so he hates himself. And now we have the explanation of his own drinking. He's also served time in prison, which for any butler at that time would have meant the absolute finish of his career. So uh, the secret that he is protecting, you know, would ruin him. He's not exaggerating it. As I've said before, he doesn't know whether Dorothy really knows or indeed whether anyone knows. But this policeman knows because he has a police record. But he hates himself for it. And uh, it was rather sad, there was a line cut earlier in the drawing room when these, I think Ivan Avello said to him, we admired their stiff upper lip, didn't we, during the war, Jennings. And he says, much more than I knew at the time, sir. And he has come to reevaluate it. And now he plays with the image of himself as a soldier under arms. It's very pathetic, of course. Alan Bates is perfectly marvellous in this part, I think. Do you remember the other boxes? Yes, everything's now they're off and we're into the whole business of the leaving. All of these resolutions have to be glimpsed. We see that the Merediths are happy now as they take hands and they go. We glimpse from the way Mabel is even walking here that she is strong. And she says to her husband, stop trying to be, do try stopping so frightened all the time. She has become stronger than Freddy. Uh, and we feel that whether she stays with him or leaves him, the whole business of him bullying her is over now. The two desperados uh, after the money go off together, trying to see if they can make money out of each other, when, of course, we feel they're both doomed to a life of failure. And now we have the young men. Still, the evil genius is warning him off her now, because the money is going to take too long to come through. Of course, Isabel hears the whole exchange and, and so conquers her own affection and attraction to Rupert. They see her standing there. Have you checked your room? You mustn't leave anything behind. I'm sure Mum's going to sell He's house. very humiliated because he, in a way, has been painted in a false position. He is not Jeremy Blonde. He doesn't only see her for her money, but, of course, that is now how she hears him, really. The uh, change of, uh, of power at the studio that enabled uh, Charlie Channing is all perfectly true. That did actually happen at the end of uh, 32. 
So all that is real life. A new head came in who liked the Charlie Chan series. But we see from Rupert's last exchange that he was really in love with Isabel. That's doomed. And now I feel with Elsie's departure, the one thing we know about her is that she's never going to go back into service. We hope when she gets into Weissman's car that he's going to give her a part of perhaps the Cockney maid that he's talked about in the hall on the telephone. But the one thing we know is that she's finished with this life. And I feel she represents all those young men and girls who only a few years later would go into war work or be called up and at the end in 1945 would not come back. This life was about to die. And she's taken the dog, of course. If you have everyone being nasty to a dog all the way through a film, you must make sure it has a happy ending and we know that Elsie's going to be nice to it. Here, Mary asked for permission to go in through the main door, which only Jennings can give her. You still have to tip. It's quite interesting that, again, one of the um, rules that a lot of people who don't belong to this world don't understand is that you must always leave a tip for the servants. That obtains now, because in those days you had to tip the butler and the maids and all sorts of people. And that doesn't usually work anymore. Men always um, give the tips direct, either leave them in the bedroom or give the tips directly to the butler, whereas women, uh, if a widowed woman, uh, quite often would do them in an envelope, as uh, Constance is doing now. Leave you in peace. Now, you will, you will telephone about the funeral plans. Here, you see, Constance just said uh, no-one's in the house who cares that he's dead, but of course she's determined to go to the funeral because, again, that's the form. She would never make a statement of a dislike of William. She must observe the fact that she is the aunt-in-law of the dead man. And Sylvia's responses don't come if it's... You don't have to come if it's a bore. Of course she's coming, because it's the correct thing. I think in this moment with Sylvia, when she says, does one really want the bother of it all, uh, that in a way was a kind of um, sign to the fact that this way of life didn't only die because the servants left, it also died because there was a sort of lack of will to make it go on among a lot of people. Suddenly, the endless management, the endless fuss, the endless changing of clothes, you're always having to be there for dinner and luncheon at a certain time. For a lot of people, it seemed rather a crashing bore, and particularly after the war, when they'd all been away and they came back to these houses, many of which were damaged by the army or the navy during their um, time, uh, you, they just thought, oh, do we really want to do all this again? As one of my cousins said to me, uh, it isn't as if we were living in, in uh, Belton. This is just a very big, very cold house. And, uh, you know, I think that a lot of them felt that. People like Sylvia, particularly when it wasn't a family house, they just thought, oh, who needs it? And now we have our resolution of the plot, that Mary wants to know everything. She's heard the name Parks up in the bedroom, and she knows that, of course, if she was Mrs. Parks, then she must be the mother uh, that Parks was talking about. And she has worked that out for herself. And here we learn uh, that the reason Mrs. Wilson knew that Parks intended his father harm, she knew it was his son, of course, but her own son, but the reason she knew he intended harm was simply her instinct for understanding what people are about to do, which is the hallmark of a good servant, as she says. It is the quality that divides a good servant from the rest. She put the child up for adoption. She put the picture in. And, of course, when she saw it in the bedroom, she knew at once that that was indeed her son. Well, she didn't die. She gave him away. 
And this is the bit that Parks doesn't know. So in the end, Mary ends up knowing more than anyone in the house. Nobody tells him that his mother is still alive. All us girls. Better start in life for our children. All the time he was dumping them, his own children, in some godforsaken place. And I believed him. I suppose it was easier that way. Mrs Wilson, never forgave uh, what I feel at this moment, just needs to talk about it to someone. That's Mrs Croft. She's my sister, didn't you? And she clearly knows this girl could get her into trouble or not. And I don't feel she cares, really. I think she's past that point. Scarlet fever. And we also hear that her sister had a child that died and lost her job as well, and that, in fact, William has ruined the lives of these two sisters. And that Mrs Croft despised Mrs Wilson for allowing her child to be adopted, and that has been the source of the hatred all the way through. It's the gift of anticipation. And I'm a good servant. Of course, anticipation is the gift of a good servant. I know when they'll be hungry and the food is ready. I know when they'll be tired and the bed is turned down. Also, Mrs Wilson has made this decision that actually the only important life here is that of her son. And really, whatever else happens doesn't matter. Why? What purpose would it possibly serve? She doesn't even want to disturb his life by telling him the truth of who she is. What if they find out what happened? And here, when Mary says what to find out, the important thing is that they can't touch Parks. What is important is his life. And now you come to the line of the film. Didn't you hear me? I'm the perfect servant. I have no life. Didn't you hear me? I'm the perfect servant. I have no life. Actually, Helen didn't want to say it. And I remember she said, oh, I think it's already in the scene. And I, I said, well, you, that is the key line of the film, really. Uh, and I'm rather pleased that a lot of the critics have pulled it out. Because um, she plays it wonderfully well, I think. She doesn't even ask her not to tell. I, uh, I mean, I felt that would degrade her somehow to say, this is going to be our secret, isn't it, or any of that stuff. And really, I don't feel she cares very much if Mary goes straight to the police, but of course Mary decides not to, as we see later. Do let us know if there's anything we can do. Those wonderful aristocratic offers of help that of course mean nothing. Thanks for your help last night. You don't have to thank me. You know I killed her, Mr. This is the final end of Dorothy, her expression of love for Jennings. And now we get the wonderful payoff scene. Um, I've written it down to the first line here when she says, don't cry, they'll hear you. We chose the names Jane and Lizzie because I didn't want them, didn't want them to be joke names, but I didn't want them to be class-specific either. And... Uh, You did what you felt was best for him. And now this is really the two... This is the one moment in the film which is improvised between the two of them because we just knew that Mrs Wilson was in despair and we, we sort of needed them to find... I wrote the scene, but as I say, apart from the first line, they didn't really stay with it. Well, that was the same story because that's, that's the story of the film. But somehow these two worked up a really fantastic moment between them, I think. I think they're absolutely terrific, actually, both of them. 
And now, my favorite thing, which is also Bob Altman's thing, is not to over-resolve. And so we never really know if these two are going to see each other again. Perhaps they are, perhaps they aren't. She's not going to tell him that she knows who his mother is. We know that. And she's not going to tell anyone that he was the one who put the knife in, and he knows that. But more than that, it's up to the audience to decide. Was it just a learning experience, or was it the beginning of a romance? But here you see that since Mary lied for her, there is a difference in their relationship, that now they're almost friends in a true way. And during this moment, of course, Mary decides that there's absolutely no point in telling anyone about Mrs Wilson because what would be gained by her hanging? What purpose could it possibly serve? So no one will ever find out who really murdered William McCordle, least of all Stephen Fry, of course. Kristen made this decision, which I really admired, actually. It was that she came in in sort of riding boots, looking very glamorous, and she said, no, I don't think so. I think she's just in shoes. It's her own house, and she's rather a sort of informal character. And there's something more poignant about that. And Jennings shuts the door on the outside world and goes back into the pattern of existence that he's never really challenged. But we know by this time that the cracks are appearing. Within seven years, Europe will be at war. Most of these houses will have been requisitioned. And this way of life may stagger on in some of them in a very much reduced form, but these two clear pyramids above and below stairs will have gone, really, in any kind of articulated fashion. And now sometimes one looks at it and it's almost as if one was examining life on the moon. And I'm very happy that we made this film when we were just in time to have living memory of people who had been servants or people who'd run these enormous households or been mistresses or masters of them. Because if we'd left it another 15, 20 years, probably they would have gone and, and that would have been that. I hope we're not too judgmental I feel Bob's great strength as a filmmaker is he sort of puts it all before you and then it's up to you to decide. Um, and that's what I hope we've done, really. That thing that, you you know, you're supposed to hate all this lot and love all that lot. There are nice and nasty people above and below. Upstairs, you don't dislike the Merediths or the Stockbridges or Mabel, certainly. Um, you know, or Weissman or Novella or whatever. And even with William, you sort of slightly rethink. I don't think, you know, I think it's complicated. And downstairs, you don't like Barnes. You don't much like the ladies' maids of Lavinia or Louisa. Really, I suppose, in my head, it's just, here are all these people. Here are 40, 50 people, whatever they are. And they're all in one house. And some of them are working there as servants. And some of them are living there as family. But they're just people who were brought together. And this was their story. Anyway, I hope people enjoy it. These were the thoughts of the screenwriter, Julian Fellows.